This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Greatest Adventure. Architect of the Fourth Dimension. More Dramatic Interaction. And The Occult Pavlova. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean, invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti. Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze again? I think I heard muffled laughter, or was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door. Of course it's locked. Just our luck. Hold your skeletal horses, Ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book. How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist? Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost and Lord Slogar is missing. Sound familiar? Whoa, that's eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with that? Patience, Ken. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you... And just my... And voila! Look, the password! And the door! It's unlocked! Now let's go party like it's 1899! Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way! It's mine! But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas-games.com slash b-d-a-y. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Before we get uh, going in earnest, we would just like to pause for a moment to uh, note the passing of tabletop role-playing pioneer and foundational figure Janelle Jockways. We were lucky enough, Ken, that you uh, were able to interview her for the show not so long ago. So uh, she gives a pretty solid career retrospective of all of the many things she did, and you'll find that if you want to go back and review it in episode 551. Yeah, it was uh, a real, I mean, it's one of the, I love going to ChupacabraCon anyway. It's one of my favorite little conventions to go to. They've always got, they believe in having a really deep bench of guests, which I think is why I get to go every year. But it was a sort of a bolt from the blue to see Janelle there and meet her at that show. And then I had the inspiration. I'm here. Janelle Jaquez is here. I have learned that I can record on my phone. Maybe I should do an episode with her. And I thought at the time it was just, we're going to plug her new project. That's going to become a Kickstarter. It's going to be a great sort of an elegiac return to form for campaign cities and her great gifts of uh, narrative and NPC design. And then, of course, sadly, she was stricken with a terrible illness and uh, taken from us. And so I'm obviously it's it's a blow to the industry. It's uh, many people, many of my friends, our friends, Robin, knew her better than I did. I actually just met her at that show and they're you know suffering on a personal level as well. But on a professional level, we're all feeling the loss. But I'm also feeling grateful that thanks to Terry Wisenant of Chupacabracon, I got the chance to meet her, tell her a little part of how important her career was to my career and do that interview that, uh, as you say, you can dial up on 551 if you're feeling reminiscent about uh, the great, uh, as you say, the foundational Janelle Chiquez. Yeah, so many, uh, she did so many different things and, and illustration as well as design and writing uh, that it's sort of challenging to pick one. But for just me as a gamer, the, I think the 
the thing that my mind goes to is the thing that caused the most excitement in me is a Dungeoneer magazine, which basically started at about the same time as a dragon. And then along with her uh, work with judges guild, when I went down to the big city from my small city mm-hmm. to find a well-stocked game store back in the very early eighties and saw, wait a minute, there's all this stuff that's kind of, it's not all from this one company. You can get Dungeons and Dragons stuff and it's looks kind of, you know, comparatively homemade and there's people doing their own thing. And, and there's this whole other community of publications that are rising around this. Wait a minute. Is this something that other people can do? So that was a real uh, point of uh, excitement. And I think uh, part of what was essential to the early growth of the hobby is the idea that if you were into this stuff, you could make some of it on your own and you didn't have to be part of this, uh, you know, mysterious TSR entity. And I think something that was foundational, I guess, in a way to both of our careers, definitely to mine, was her early work as a dungeon designer, Caverns of Thracia, Dark Tower, the legendary dungeons that were more than just, you know, layer cake full of monsters. They were stories. They were archaeological presentations and you had to uncover the story and then caverns of thracia the story also tied into earthly history and myth and if you're beginning to say ken are you just saying that you've ripped off janelgic ways for your entire career i'll say well maybe not my entire career <laughs> but yeah caverns of thracia was one of those that sort of opened my eyes very early when i was buying as robin says any kind of ridiculous thing i could find on the shelves and this judges guild business it was even I could tell that it was worse printed than TSR, but that just meant more bang for the buck. Beautiful, beautiful newsprint. Yeah, and I saw that campaign, and I and I said, well, if you can do that, then you can do anything. And from then on, my blue dragons lived in Anasazi Kivas, and my evil emperor was the Byzantine emperor, and I never looked back. And it has been quite a journey, both as a player and as a professional and a lot of that started, maybe not every single bit of it. I think Sandy Peterson gets a shout out if we're talking about my DNA, but definitely Caverns of Thracia is what told me dungeons could actually mean something and actually not be boring. And that is a powerful realization to have at the beginning of your of, of an art form, much less at the beginning of a career in that art form. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And uh, today it looks like maybe we're not so much set up for a game. We're still over at the shelf. The cinder blocks and the wood planks that someone found at a construction site or maybe got at uh, Menards on a two-for-one lumber sale. Anyway, there on the shelf, we got a bunch of campaigns. I got your... Massive Neolithotep, you got your Great Pendragon campaign, you got your Dracula dossier, you've got many other also quite nice campaigns. And what's this? A, a slim, a slim piece of paper. It's almost like a folder. It's called the case of the editor's envelope. And Robin, beloved Patreon backer Ludovic Shabant wants to know why, I guess, you selected that saying, I was surprised by Robin's entry into this list of greatest RPG adventures of all time. And uh, many people picked many of the scenarios, including the ones that I've just named. Not only is it an obscure pick from Dragon Magazine, Robin's description is also rather expedited. I think being less prolix than Luke Gygax is a virtue, not necessarily. (laughs) Yeah, so this is on the Scroll for Initiative blog, and they cleverly got a lot of people who write big, expensive words to Mm -hmm. write words for them. But I was just asked on Blue Sky, so I Mm -hmm. gave a Blue Sky-length answer. Right, 240 characters on Case of the Editor's Envelope. Yes, which literally was naming that and saying it's in uh, Dragon Magazine number 47. It's by uh, David Zeb Cook. It's nice to be able to uh, give a shout out to Zeb Cook. Yeah. And I was not trying to, you know, reject the premise. I was just uh, answering the question as succinctly as I can. But uh, here on this podcast, which uh, thanks to beloved backers like Ludovic, I am paid. (laughs) I can expand uh, somewhat on that. And I think this goes to the ultimate subjectivity of what adventure you like best. So when I was asked this question, I wanted to name something that I had actually played 
and had a great time with and had that it had worked, it had done its job, rather than perhaps one of the classics of the form, which I perhaps have read and devoured, uh, as I have the names of some of the other ones that are on the list at Squirrel Furnishive. But early on in my uh, gaming, I started making up my own adventures and uh, and running those. And so I read a ton of adventures, uh, but I ran very few of them because I was mining them for ideas yeah, for and pieces how do you of do your this game. thing. Yeah. And then I went off and did that thing. So I read a lot of you know, just straight up dungeons, including the ones we just uh, mentioned from Judges Guild and read, oh, there's this thing in this room and this thing in that room. So the list that I could possibly draw from of things that I picked up and ran as they were, rather than making up my own, was pretty short, actually, surprisingly yeah. short. So would I select Village of Homlet mm. as my favorite adventure of all time? Does anyone? <laughs> I think someone might have in that actual blog entry, but yeah. yeah, if someone had an amazing time having their players raid this village that's outside a dungeon that was yeah. printed as its own separate adventure, maybe. Keep on the Borderlands, that was, you know, a basic, you know, introduction to the dungeon. Uh, many people ran that, many people remember that. Is it the greatest of all time? I don't know. Some of the RuneQuest things that I actually ran uh, published adventures for uh, is the one where you go get hired by a minor lunar nobility and then go bother some newtlings <laughs> is is that the greatest adventure of all time so the one that's closest to a structured adventure that i still uh, remember certain details from the way we ran particularly a uh, shootout with one of the uh, pulp heroes it's a pulp hero game that is complete in issue 47 of dragon and then there's this adventure and it's a really great game and I think is also the favorite pulp game of other people and not just me. There was a scene where one of the pulp heroes was in a phone booth and the bad guys start firing away and the, the glass shatters in the phone booth. Have I gone back to find that and read it and see if that scene is in it or whether we just use the adventure to improvise to that moment that I remember to this day? I don't know. Who can say? I didn't check it because like all great adventures, it became its own thing. And unlike other adventures that I ran early on, it had a distinct uh, narrative to it. It felt like a pulp adventure. And so mm -hmm. I want to give all uh, kudos to Zeb because for me personally, having run that and that session went well with my high school players and it became one of those great sessions for me of the published adventures I've run, Case of the Editor's Envelope is the one that gets the thumbs up. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a superb criterion you know, only ones you've actually run. I mean, James Intracasso picked Dracula Dossier. He's run Dracula Dossier, not saying that makes him the best answer on the list, but who can say? Yeah, I think that if you are narrowing it down to things that I actually ran, we're talking about, like, classic Call of Cthulhu adventures, and a few of the sort of late AD&D dungeons are the only ones I could pretty much put in without caviling too much. I will say, Robin, that if I held to your standard, you and I might not have this podcast and become and have become the boon companions that we are because I've never run what I consider one of the greatest adventures in the history of the art form. Top 10, certainly top five, maybe last chance brains, your adventure for over the edge. And that was the adventure that I had recently read. And when I met you, I couldn't shut up about and just as a little tip out there, you want to be friends with a writer, begin by fulsomely praising something obscure they've done. And uh, that will often turn heads. It doesn't always work. George R. R. Martin couldn't care less what I thought about Fever Dream. But Robin loved that I loved Last Chance Brains. And as far as I'm concerned, it belongs on that darn list. And it should be. Right. And that's sort of it's for over the edge. And it's sort of your classic kind of uh, mind trip story rendered into role playing terms. And exactly. Quite often particularly in comics, but you see it every now and again in TV. Now there'll be like something where you're uh, in this one, reality collapses and you have to reboot reality and you're encountering, you know, things from your uh, past and other people's past and you're knitting it all together. So it's one of those uh, sort of head trip games. And I hadn't seen anyone else do that in a scenario form. And since that was the early nineties, uh, there were many more things that people hadn't done yet. Right. Exactly. It was, uh, it was a real opportunity. It, I mean, I liked, first of all, the just the brio of the writing. And then I also, as you say, I liked the idea that you'd sort of tackled that that challenge of a thing that happens 
in stories that we didn't see happen a lot in game and also made it not just sort of a tedious exercise in, you know, pixel counting that it became actually its own convincingly, what do I want to say? Convincingly complete narrative while also serving this sort of fundamentally side point of get the character back to where they were at the beginning of the adventure and move on. And I, and I just really liked uh, every aspect of it. I, uh, I went back and I read Case of the Editor's Envelope. When you put that up, I don't think that I remember if there was a phone booth in it myself. And I remember looking at it and saying, ah, that's a good adventure. Zeb Cook does good work. This has been true of virtually everything of Zeb's I've ever seen. But again, I don't, I never played it. So I didn't have that moment where something jumps off the page and alchemically takes a life of its own the way that a great role-playing scenario or even often a medium great role-playing scenario can. Well, I'm I'm glad to know that with the uh, benefit of you reading it now, Mm -hmm. that there's not a massive gulf between (laughs) my experience of what you saw on the page. It it seemed fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, close up the gaming hut, but I think there's a double hut waiting for us on the horizon. Polyrain Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoch Terror. A Casket at Latil, village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's Visitation with everyone's favorite aftermath children's entertainer and sarah's love wears no mask which brings carcosa to its natural contemporary home reality television also out now legions of carcosa the bestiary for the yellow king from alien parasites to warped human conspirators from hungry buildings to incarnations of drought from gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs legions of carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify haunt and menace your investigators fresh from the skull masked minds of john r harness kira magrin Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. We have a super uh, special uh, hut that goes way up to the sky and has all sorts of ornamentation and also a reception inside with uh, hors d'oeuvres and so forth. And I think this even extends into another dimension because the architecture hut is hosting the Culture Hut, or perhaps the other way around, because uh, beloved backer Fred Kish wants us to talk about Claude Bragdon's drawings of the fourth dimension. And Claude Bragdon was a multi-talent. He was an architect for a long time. Uh, He then went into stage design exclusively. Uh, He did graphic design. He did book covers. So he uh, well uh, deserved to be covered in the Culture Hut. But also, he could also be in the consulting occultist because yeah. uh, he was also, in his other persona, was a theosophist and uh, a, a prolific early author of what we would now call New Age literature. So, Ken, why don't you start us out on the story of Claude Fayette Bragdon? Yeah, Claude Bragdon is born in 1866 in Oberlin, Ohio. His father is in the uh, grip of three, let's, shall we say, unrealistic belief systems. He is a transcendentalist, a theosophist, and a journalist, and moves all over the country. He was a journalist back then. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, back then. Anyway, he moves all over the country and finally uh, fetches up in Rochester, New York, uh, where Bragdon grows up. Bragdon has an early gift for drawing and 
becomes an architect. And back in those days, you could just be an architect by apprenticeship, which is how he did it. He trained both in Rochester architectural offices and in New York City. In 1891, he opens up an architectural practice in Rochester with a partner and goes to the World's Fair in 1893 and is immediately Daniel Burnham pilled by the World's Fair and becomes a full-on city beautiful guy. And the okay, notion- so explain Daniel Burnham. Daniel Burnham is the father of Chicago architecture, angelic contactee, Swedenborgian, and prime architect of the World's Fair White City, which was the name of all the pavilions, the fairgrounds, in the 1893 World's Fair. And the notion of the city beautiful was that a city, now that we're moving into the 20th century, should not just be an agglomeration of dirt and jobs, it should also be beautiful and elevating, and people should walk into an American city and feel as transported as when they walk into Baron Hausmann's at that time very new Paris. And we were looking across the Atlantic and says, well, if they could do that with Paris, imagine what we could do with a truly great city like Chicago. And <laughs> the white city is a proof of concept and that uh, a ton of architects fell hard for this. And there is sort of a combination progressive political notion that the city should elevate all of its inhabitants and not just be, you know, a Darwinian struggle zone. There's the notion of, you know, art as civilizing influence that the way you can handle all of these ethnic groups and people that have moved in and uh, situations is to give everyone a common cultural ideology. And that would be an American blending of all the great arts from all around the world. And this is what the World's Fair sort of symbolized to a bunch of bunch of architects and other people. And so he's uh, becomes a devotee of Chicago architecture from that moment, goes to London, Paris, and Italy in 1895 and 1896. So if you are thinking Yellow King, well, you're not the only person here. By 1900, he has become a full-on devotee of Louis Sullivan, the great exponent of Chicago skyscraper architecture, the man who marries ornament and engineering better than any architect probably ever has, certainly since maybe the Renaissance. Louis Sullivan himself was a Christian mystic who believed in the inscrutable great spirit that elevates great art, which is to say he was an artist, and Bragdon becomes his disciple, and under sort of the influence of Sullivan, he moves, and you can see it in his designs, from sort of a Beaux-Arts, American neoclassical style through Richardsonian Romanesque, which is a sort of prairie or Chicago Romanesque that involves sort of mathematical ratios and geometrical designs, and then into what became the Prairie School, Sullivan and uh, eventually Frank Lloyd Wright being the great exponent of that, the notion that organic forms have to inform your architecture as well. And in Bragdon's head, this is a combination of mathematics and nature joined by the Pythagorean theories of music. Uh, his great frustration in a career of producing beautiful art in many, many media is that he was only in a different musician. He tried playing the banjo, couldn't make it work. So he loved music, but he could not create it himself. But he did everything he possibly could. And at this time, he is inspired by the notion of the fourth dimension, which Keep in mind, Einstein doesn't even know it's time yet. Nobody knows it's time. The fourth dimension is just thought of a, as an extra kind of weird space. And this comes from Riemann's mathematics. Another mathematician named Hinton uh, popularized the fourth dimension in a very big way. And obviously, Bragdon had read Flatland from 1884, the great Victorian, you know, mind bender, speaking of brain breaking adventures. And so that gets tied in with his father's sort of belief in a transcendental order that can look down on us like we look down on this on the second dimension on an architectural drawing for example then in 1907 his wife charlotte who he loves very much dies in childbirth and it's at this point that like many many people who've lost a loved one turns to uh, spiritualism but in this case not to ghost calling spiritualism but the spiritual component of theosophy and he realizes everything he's done up until now has been in the purpose of theosophy, that theosophy unifies all these beliefs in the same way that American architecture should unify all the arts to create something beautiful and both new and old at the same time. He writes in 1910, The Beautiful Necessity, Seven Essays 
on theosophy and architecture, which is basically the first work of sacred geometry in English, although he never uses the term sacred geometry. Um, he is sort of great triumph is the Rochester, New York Central Railroad Station, which he designs between 1909 and 1913. It's completed in 14. In 1965, of course, it is demolished by Visigoths because this is what happens to good things. That's why we can't have them. And during that process, he meets a woman named Eugenie Macaulay, who is a, me a psychic woman. Uh, she does automatic writing and transmediumship. Again, she doesn't do anything as vulgar as talk to ghosts. She has bigger stuff on her mind. Uh, she channels the Mahatmas uh, like uh, Madame Blavatsky did. And uh, he marries uh, Eugenie in 1912. And she encourages his deeper pursuit of the art, as they say. And so he writes, Man the Square, a higher space parable, a primer of higher space in 1913, and projective ornament in 1915, where he talks about how the way to get perfect ornament that you can use in an, any context, not just architecture, but in industrial design, in fabrics, in books, in anything, uh, clothing, is that you take fourth dimensional geometries and you collapse them into two dimensional ornament. And so what you get are these wonderfully interesting patterns. And he says that they are a compromise or a, a union rather uh, between the crystal and the arabesque between West and East. Right. And you can look these up on the internet and see them. Yep. They're in the public domain. And when you look at them, you will automatically spot the arts and crafts and art nouveau styles at work. So even if yes, you he was called the Beardsley of Rochester by people who were not being mean to him in the 1890s when he was a, a youth. Yes. And he's clearly influenced by Beardsley and those other people. And so, that, again, brings us a Yellow King uh, connection, that this is the beautiful, ornamented vision of uh, Carcosa, uh, not the weird, scary part that you uh, find later. Mm -hmm. He then gets into a community song, again, as a progressive political movement, but also as an artistic movement, the notion being that you bring every choir, every singing group, every group from everyone in the city all walks of life, all races, all ethnic groups together, and you put on a massive concert with all of their voices joined singing songs that everyone knows and loves. And this will, first of all, be a huge spectacle because you don't usually get to hear a thousand voice choir in any circumstance. And then you do it at dusk or and then into night. There's lights, there's beautiful designs, hangings and staging, all of which, of course, he designed to the Tenets of Projective Ornament, does these festivals of song and light in upstate New York. And then in 1916, he has sort of his triumphant one in Central Park in 1916 in New York City. They do the Festival of Song and Light, and it's just a, you know, transcendent success, and everybody loves it. But right. then, it is a part of a, a movement called Community Music Reform, mm -hmm. which combines both the aesthetic and the political objectives of bringing everybody together in a combination. And you know, having lights and processions at dusk. Uh, could something beautiful have emerged from another world? We don't know. We're, we weren't there. Right. But despite the best efforts of his wife, Eugenie, who says that the Mahatmas are against it and they're going to keep America out of the war, we enter the war. So at the, at the moment we enter the war, his life takes a new divergent track. He's building the Rochester Chamber of Commerce building, laying it out as a hypercube, and he has a big fight with Charles Eastman, the guy who runs Kodak and is paying for the building, over should this building be a hypercube, and uh, he says yes, and Eastman says, are you crazy? And he says, don't ask that. And so he gets his building built according to a sort of compromise design that I guess makes everyone sort of happy, except him. Um, usually he dies in 1920. He goes ever deeper into theosophy. He translates a fundamental work of late theosophy, the tertium organum of uh, the Russian mathematician Uspensky in 1922. And you can still see his foreword to that translation up on sacred texts or wherever you find a public domain theosophy. In 1923, he just closes his Rochester architectural office. Eastman is basically blackballed him with every rich person in Rochester. And he moves to New York City and becomes a stage designer. He's met artistic and theatrical people when he put up the big festival of song and light they remember how great he was and he sort of takes a new career doing very advanced and modern uh, stage designs and so you've ever wondered why stages don't all have pillars and 
pastoral Arcadian scenes in the back like they used to in the great days of uh, Sarah Bernhardt. Well, it's our boy Claude Bragdon has said maybe they should look like something else. They, they should present a different universe. And possibly he had a greater impact on theatrical stage design than he did on architecture. He but certainly is, did. <laughs> by its nature, uh, is ephemeral and uh, the buildings, or at least some of them, and a bridge in uh, southern Ontario that the Hunter Street Bridge remain. And so you can still uh, see those and see the the Art Nouveau uh, influence on them. Yeah, he absolutely had a bigger influence on stage design. And I'll get to that in a bit. In 1932, he does his final work on the principles of ornament, the frozen fountain, which is illustrated by Sinbad the Sailor or Sinbad the Traveler, who wears a black cloak with a strange trefoil design on the back of it, Robin. And it's a trefoil design that he'd been using since the 1890s, since perhaps Paris. And sure, people will say that's just CB in a weird, flowy arabesque. But is it, Robin? Is it? Could it be a sign of some kind? Anyway, he builds the uh, entrance arch for the campus of the American Theosophical Society in Wheaton, Illinois. Yes, he's willing to come back to architecture for the perfect gift. For the theosophists. Uh, they want him to build the campus building, and he, he says he'll consult on that, but he does build them this nice arch that has a cool, occult-looking blue symbol in the middle. Yep. And he dies in uh, 1946, covered in glory, if not necessarily in money, in New York City. He's basically been kept alive by a rich widow in Buffalo, who was a theosophist who met him way back in his Rochester days and always thought he was something special. So whenever he was you know, short of some money, she'd pay him to draw something and keep his rent paid. And so that was nice of her. Alice Sprague, if you're looking for someone to say a theosophist novena to. Anyway, the reason that he has had very little impact on architecture, not just because of barbarians knocking down his buildings, but because the modernists, the high international modernists, uh, the Le Corbusier lot all got together and said, we can't have a bunch of people who believe in nice looking buildings as part of our movement. And mysticism, that's also <laughs> not hyper rational. That's also not, although Corbusier himself has a mystical tendency that he kept on the very DL. But the architectural historian Henry Russell Hitchcock is the, is the uh, dagger man on this one. He, his uh, buddy Philip Johnson was behind it as well. That fraud Lewis Mumford, who became an architectural critic because he read Bragdon's architectural criticism. So it's a, a bit of a, you know, a stabbing at your mentor action. And they hate him because of the ornament. Basically, the ornament drives them bananas. Ornament is about individualism. They're all commies. Right. They hate that. Although from Bragdon's point of view, and he was also not interested in individualism. He thought that visual harmony and particularly visual harmony between different buildings meant a community spirit. So yes. it, it is ironic to see him uh, blackguarded for individualism when he thought he was fighting individualism. Well, we will perhaps note that this will not be the only casualty plowed under by high internationalist modernism. And in fact, this reminded me very much of the Ansel Adams destroying William Mortensen that we talked about in our segment on William Mortensen. And it's all part of the desperate insecurity of the international modernists who were based on one school, not even the best school in Austria and Germany. That was the, that would be the secessions. They're in the terrible one, the Bauhaus, and they want to sort of rewrite the history of modernism and say, they're the only modernists. They're the only ones that count. Now, the one guy they can't rule out because it would be impossible is Frank Lloyd Wright. So they have to say, well, Wright is the real disciple of Louis Sullivan. And in the thirties, Wright also wants to be the real disciple of Louis Sullivan, and his only real challenger is Claude Bragdon, who, it turns out, is editing Louis Sullivan's works, still in conversation with Louis Sullivan's estate. Louis Sullivan has died by now, but he is very much the heir to Sullivan in a lot of people's minds. And so Wright, despite hating the Bauhaus and the international style in general, although he uh, design stuff in dialogue with because he's a great artist. Savages Bragdon in a review of the frozen fountain in 1932 calls him an architectural necromancer. And he says that he's not individual, unlike me, Frank Lloyd Wright, perfect genius, uh, because he believes in this mass ornamentation that you talk about. So he attacks him from, I guess you could call it the right. If you're 
reducing everything to this two dimensions or one dimension. Right. And, and the necrometer crack is not about his mystical leanings, but rather about the fact that he has access to the Sullivan material. Right. That right? he's, he says, Oh, you think he's so much like Sullivan, but that's just because he's repeating what a dead man does. He's not truly an artist. And so this is really about Wright's ego and Wright's desire to be seen as the only heir to Louis Sullivan. And this is what happens. But Bragdon did not only inspire Wright, which he absolutely did, but the painter Kazmir Malevich in Russia, who basically founded one school of Russian abstract painting that got ground under by socialist realism. And Buckminster Fuller, who we've also done a segment on, he built something called the 40 House, or rather designed it in 1928. And I guess as our sort of final note on this, there is a very weird his own segment kind of guy, uh, Paul Lafollay, an architect and painter who wrote a short story called Bragdon meets Heinlein about the secret inspiration of Heinlein's story. And he built a crooked house. And at the beginning of this segment, I literally thought when, when you wrote it down and said Bragdon's fourth dimension, I said, Oh, we're going to talk about Robert Heinlein. And then it turned out there was a whole chapter on Bragdon in Jocelyn Godwin's upstate cauldron. And we only get to Heinlein now at the end, Robin. Sorry. Right. So we've already hit all of the different uh, sort of Yellow King echoes that you can uh, get to here. Uh, you could meet him in Paris in 1895, as we've already pointed out, or you could do sort of uh, sequel scenarios with the surviving Paris characters somewhat later after they return to America and uh, find this very beautiful vision of what might be an alternate world uh, coming into reality. And is it Carcosa? Is it anti-Carcosa? Uh, does the king... Uh, want to destroy it? Is it a, another mask for the king? I bet you could go to a beautiful lantern festival with uh, lots of music and singing and uh, find out exactly what's going on there. And maybe in the Castane universe, Bragdon becomes the architect instead of Wright. And uh, it's like, you know, how wonderful abstraction flourished in the very early days of the Soviet Revolution before they crushed it. Same deal with Bragdon. Maybe he was originally a, a artist elevated by the Winthrop program in the beautification of New York and, and Chicago and all the cities. Yeah, he might've been that he would be the Winthrop era. And then the Castanes come in and bring in brutalism. And exactly. And end it. But you can still see the Bragdonian ornament because it is Carcosan and they can't get rid of it necessarily sort of filtering in all the buildings. Well, on that note, I think we've uh, covered this. Uh, I think this wound up being three or four different huts. Yeah. So, Let's uh, let's go to the, this mess of huts into something that isn't even a hut at all. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Support this podcast from every dimension by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... The Molten Sulfur Blog. Ginge. Philip Masters. Randy Ship. And Ryan Lassiter. And now it's time to continue uh, Ken and Robin Recycle Audio with another series of snippets from the Dramatic Interaction panel that uh, I did at Gen Con, uh, assisted by John R. Harness and Emily Cambius. And uh, this time around, we're going to start, first of all, with uh, Emily picking up on the petitioner-granter structure of dramatic role-playing and finding uh, yet another new exciting level in it. I did want to say one thing, which I think is kind of... John and I were talking about this earlier, actually, um, which is that there's this sort of secret second petitioner-grantee 
relationship that happens, especially in games with GMs, where you as the petitioner are approaching an object or a thing and essentially petitioning the object or thing to grant you something. And that can be very powerful in a lot of weird ways. One of the best versions of this that I've ever seen is uh, my friend Alex, who's one of the best GMs I've ever had, runs an amazing death scene in which at no point does he ever say this person is dead. He describes what's happening to the body and so you're consistently reacting to what's happening to the body of your friend who you're trying to save. Their skin is cooling. They're losing a lot of blood. They're not really breathing anymore. And you can react to each of those things, essentially petitioning the object that is their body to grant you they're coming back to life. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult and I think that it really hammers home that sense that you can't win all the time especially in a life or death situation like that right and what you're pointing to is the fact that every scene in a narrative has a question that it poses mm -hmm. and in a dramatic scene the question is you know is this concession going to be made in a procedural scene it's going to be is this problem going to be solved and then you can render that in a more specific way in this case am I going to save this person? And so if you are uh, watching a scene unfold between your players, or if you're one of the players engaged in it, and it seems to be going kind of boring or sideways, and you know the GM isn't stepping in, or as GM you feel you want to give it a little more breathing room, ask yourself, what is the question the scene is posing, and what direction can I give either to myself as a player, or to the players as, as a GM, in order to sharpen that question and, and move towards some sort of resolution that results in consequence, that results in, in story. And uh, now we've reached the uh, part of the panel that it was a master class, so we're asking for people for questions. My emphasis there was on uh, the people in the room, not about making it available for a recording. So uh, rather than repeating the question uh, during the event, I'm going to be repeating the questions now. And the first one, uh, here we're asked uh, to do a drama system scene with uh, other characters present, and one in which a character uh, stands up to uh, disrupt a coronation. So basically, at this point, we're just sort of describing how a uh, drama system works. Yes, absolutely. So the, the way this would work in, in drama system is if that's, if that's your scene has come, you, you're the one who hates the king, right? You go, okay, uh, well, my scene is with the king. Uh, it's at the coronation. The coronation is about to occur, and you might describe the scene. You know, the guards are all there, and even though I'm aware that everybody there has a crossbow, I'm reasonably certain, or perhaps don't even care, what the consequence would be. I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to denounce the king in the middle of the yeah, coronation. Yeah. And this would be uh, what John would refer to as a strong choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially, so. if, you know, if it's one of those situations where it's like, we're going to go in and stealthily gather some information... You know, and then you're breaking the plan. People don't like it when you break the plan, so it's nice when the game gives you the opportunity to break the plan. Right. That everybody's already sort of bought into that right. process. And, and Hill Folk cheats to solve the obvious problem there, which is that in this game, because it's not about procedural adventure, it's not whether you live or die, your character can't be killed without your permission. So however the scene comes up, the other player, presumably, who's playing the king, he, he might be able to order you within the scene, kill that guy, but the GM goes, well, for some reason, and then comes up with a credible mm -hmm. reason why, you know, he then has to exile you or whatever, you know. And that answer might be in the next scene where the king's mom is the player and then she has to take the king inside and, well, you know, he does think you're terrible, but he's your brother, <laughs> <laughs> right? Which is the example, right, that the, these are dramatic stories about people who are in, because of love and hate, are stuck with each other. Mm -hmm. Would you remind us just templatically, so this game does have a GM role, and the characters are relatively... You're not constantly shifting between which character you are. In uh, Hill Folk, you have a player character, uh -huh. and you identify with that character, and you, you want them to succeed, and there's even, as I described, a little level of player versus player involved. And the GM acts as a moderator, and also as the player of all of the other less important characters. One thing I do think about the drama system that I quite like is also that in playing it, you are also buying into the implication that your actions will have consequences, very severe consequences in some cases. So when you stand up and say, the king is a fraud, you are, at least you ought to be, implicitly acknowledging that you could be exiled and that you not, won't necessarily win. Yes. The next question uh, builds on that uh, by asking how multi-character scenes uh, might work. So in a, in a multi-character scene, 
either the player who's calling the scene says, well, I'm, you know, I'm at the banquet after the coronation. Things are a little awkward. <laughs> you know, the king's brother is in manacles over there, but uh-huh. he still gets, he's still the king's brother. He gets to the banquet. Everybody's there, but really... I'm sort of want to mostly talk to mom mm-hmm. and kind of indicate to her that she should do something to get my brother out of this. So that's one way to handle it. Another way is just you describe, oh, I'm at the banquet, and then everybody talks to each other. And then at the end of the scene, you go, so who were you petitioning? And then the player goes, uh, well, I guess I mostly talked to mom. So, mm-hmm. And then it's like, did you get what you wanted from mom? It's like, no, mom never gives me what I want. <laughs> and so there's two different ways to do that. And, and often sometimes the intention of the scene will, will organically change while they're playing it. So it might well be that you go, oh, uh, I meant this to be talking to mom, but I mostly actually talked to my mm-hmm. brother. So I guess really... You know, and he gave me what I wanted, so I, I guess I have to give him the drama token. And it's because it's always important to you know allow the organic things that are arising to uh, live and breathe. Here's another kind of basic question about how drama tokens are used and how you invest your players in that. There's a lot of different group cultures that emerge from people playing this game. One of them is, well, we don't like player versus player at all. So even though the rules say this, we're just going to take that structure and completely ignore the drama tokens and never use them. Uh-huh. There's another level, which is, okay, I'm almost never going to force anybody to do anything. What I want is the score, right? I just want to pile up the biggest pile of drama tokens without ever using them, uh, which is another deep human reaction to <laughs> gaining a resource. Uh-huh. And then there's other groups that are very cutthroat about uh, using that uh, to navigate. But a, a lot of my rules in different games are actually creating a structure to tell you what to do without actually ever really invoking the rule. Mm-hmm. And some of those versions do that uh, more than others. And the next question is, how do you as a GM ensure that certain story points occur as you would be able to do uh, in a more typical trad game? Right. Well, the thing you have to do as a GM in, in this, and I think is a, a lesson that you can do with other games as well, is to let go of the idea of, I need this to happen. Because what you never know in this setup, and I think in a lot of uh, story games where it's all about emotion, is where it's going to go. So it's like, I need him never to be released. Well, it doesn't matter. So part of the the joy of this game as a GM is you don't have to do the work of thinking of what's going to happen because you do not know it's going to go somewhere very, very different. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I don't think in that scenario that you know, the king's vizier can still be attempting to capture, recapture that person for their own nefarious reasons. So the drama of is this person released or not can remain active if that's part of, like, the pitch of your game. You know, let it go somewhere, but you you came here to play something, right? So you can keep, I think, that tension in, but it's, yeah, does, I, I don't, I think if you go into, if you say, this is a game about compromise, except for this one, <laughs> that, that adds a weird dynamic um, that I would encourage you to avoid. And then finally, for this bit of recycled audio, uh, the next question is how to integrate drama system into the structure of other games, uh, such as 13th Age. So the thing to do is when characters begin to interact with each other, uh, first of all, you may ask them to create a relationship map, as is in Hillfolk, and that'll go a long way toward it. You don't necessarily, in 13th Age, want everybody to have an emotional need from each other that they, the other one refuses mm-hmm. to grant, because those are comrades. They're working together to solve problems. So you may merely want to keep this in the back of your mind for the rare instances when this emerges organically to just sort of move the story along a bit in terms of like when two characters are at loggerheads, remind them, well, why are you having this argument, really? And in an F20 or D&D-ish or 13th Age sort of context, often it's the players, really, who are having the argument. And perhaps the way to get them to stop arguing about what the stupid plan is, <laughs> is to say, well, why are you so intent on this being the plan instead of this yeah. being, like, you know, don't you, don't you see that March the Druid is, is feeling rejected by your insistence on this uh, plan that will also be boring and wreck the whole storyline? <laughs> <laughs> think that there is good tech in drama system and if you want to take that tech and use it go for it um, monster hearts was brought up earlier and i think that avery alder the creator of that game i don't know if she's read drama system i have no idea but i think there's similar tech in that game so if you want to go uh, look there go for it and, and um, they're both based on the way stories work yeah but on a, on a meta level i think the idea is that 
drama system is trying to get across the idea of compromise and of drama coming out of character interactions that evolve compromise and eventual payoff. And so that's the sort of thing in the back of your head. I think just saying something like, you know, like going back to that question, you know, I, I keep imagining this kind of like crossroads. Like, do we go slay the dragon? Do we go pillage the village? I don't know. That's a, that's a big decision, not the big dramatic kind of decision I was talking about earlier, but in a sort of like, we're going to spend the next month doing one or the other, probably, you know? And I think that this can also play, play out there. You can say, what if we don't just have an out-of-character fight about which of us is right, about what fun we're going to have over the next month. That's a bad time. Don't do that. <laughs> what if instead you said, okay, we now have a technology, or at least a way of thinking about, what if your character really wants to go to the village, but we decide, your character really wants to go left, but we decide to go right, now what do we do with that energy? Taking that as an opportunity for role-play and character development, as opposed to just, well, I got outvoted, something In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs, but this time around, we're carrying a very delicate yet delicious dessert because this is also the food hut, because estimable Patreon backer Elias Helfer, seconded by Jamie Twine, would like to know the following. So he points us to an article in Atlas Obscura about two historians trying to figure out whether the pavlova, the uh, delicious meringue and fruit dessert, is from Australia or New Zealand. And Elias says, sounds wholesome and innocent, right? Until the end, where you learn that one of the guys is working on a book about occultism and esoterica down under. This sounds like a job for Ken and Robin, if ever I heard it. What is the occult significance of the Pavlova? Uh, Ken, as the consulting occultist, what did you discover about this? Well, first of all, I read the article, which was great fun. It's about the Pavlova, this meringue dessert, as you say, that uh, Australia and New Zealand have been fighting over who was the bigger suck-up to Anna Pavlova, famous dancer. She, by the way, just to give her background, born in 1881, basically was too skinny and uh, ethereal-looking to be a ballerina. Back in those days, they were all sort of like athletes. They were like, you know, if you imagine like gymnast build rather than ballerina build, that's what they all sort of looked like. But Sheer theatrical talent led her to the top of her profession. She debuted in a ballet called The False Dryads with the Russian big uh, St. Petersburg Ballet. And she famously created the role of the Dying Swan in 1905, choreographed by a guy named Mikhail Fokin, set to the work of Camille Sansons. He did a thing called The Carnival of the Animals. One segment is the swan. And Mikhail Fokin did a choreography for it that she brought to life. And that became sort of her signature piece. And uh, she toured Australia and New Zealand in 1926, at which point the story goes, someone in one of those two countries said, I will dedicate this brand new dessert to Anna Pavlova, and I will name it the Pavlova. And there has been a slap fight ever since 
across the Tasman Sea between those two great lands for the right to have named a meringue dessert after Anna Pavlova. Right, because if there's anything more mysterious than the occult, it's the food hut right. where you try to find out where a dish came from because, of course, new food items don't just appear out of nowhere. And it turns out that the answer to the question, did the pavlova come from Australia or New Zealand? The answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> Neither. It came from America. Enjoy it, everybody. It follows a, a circuitous, meandering line of development from Europe with their various uh, fruit and cream concoctions to America, where the essential ingredient cornstarch enters and meringues occur, and then somehow gets over down under. So someone, uh, you know, names it after Pavlova, but the dish existed before then, or largely existed before then. Yeah. And the uh, Oxford English Dictionary has determined that the first use of Pavlova in print to refer to that dessert, as opposed to an entirely different dessert, was used to refer to a sorbet, like a crazy person, once. Yes, because people wanted to, you know, honor her with more than one delicious uh, dessert. She was that good. But it was a strawberry sorbet. It seems lovely, but it's not a pavlova. But the first use of the term pavlova to refer to this uh, delightful meringue concoction comes in New Zealand in 1927. And therefore, the OED sort of gives them the palm, although they take it back with another hand saying, New Zealand or Australia origin up in the parentheses. So Right, because the, f- the first appearance is not necessarily the, the first instance. Exactly. But that's as old as people can get documentarily, which is why this book is, of course, about starting the fight all over again and then saying, oh, uh, sorry, guys, America did it, which I happen to think is the perfect ending, but I would. So the occult question of the pavlova is, what is the nature of the pavlova? What makes it a pavlova instead of, as you say, any of these other fruit and cream desserts that the Austrians invented way back in the time once they stopped trying to conquer Europe? had got to what they were really good at. And the thing that is the key to it is that there are these four layers. There is fruit on top, not inside. There is whipped cream underneath the fruit that sits on top of a stiff meringue. And inside the meringue, there is, as you say, the cornstarch, the essential ingredient, a cornstarch, basically marshmallow fluff sort of thing inside the meringue. So we have four layers, right, from fruit on the out all the way into the deep marshmallow in the middle. And that, of course, puts me in the mind of the four worlds of the Kabbalah uh, from Asiya, the material world, the world we all live in where stuff happens. And that's the world that sort of excites us. It fills our senses. And that would be the fruit, right? That that's, you know, what better symbol of our world than a bunch of sliced up passion fruits and kiwis, I ask you. Right. It's it's the most natural of, uh, of these items. Exactly. Represents the material world. And then Yetzirah is the sort of astral plane, the world of dreams and imagination, um, the world of deep passion, and that is obviously whipped cream. And right, I because fluffy clouds. I well, fluffy clouds, and also I hope at this stage I do not have to go into details as to why whipped cream is the ingredient of love. But ask Herb Alpert or your dad if you really must know. Then the stiff meringue is Bria the world of forms and uh, sort of the visible gods. Um, this is like your, your, your sort of angels and, and secondary forces that uh, carry out the will of the Godhead. Right. And because of course, Meringue has, has peaks. Has peaks, peaks are where the gods live. Right. Uh, the, the, where the gods dance, as Lovecraft tells us. And it's also the only part of this that is sharp or hard in any way. And so that is the sort of, you know, the job of the angels, the job of, um, Gevura in the Kabbalah to be sort of tough on you and shake their finger and say, no, that's what the meringue is there to do. And then in the middle, there is nothing but eternal perfection, the Atsuluth, the Godhead, perfect being. And Robin, I hardly have to tell you that marshmallow fluff is as close as we get in this world to formless, changeless, eternal perfection. Am I wrong? Not wrong at all. And just like the gods require a constant worship in order to reaffirm our connection to them. Marshmallow fluff, you have to keep paying attention to it and stirring it or it hardens into a nasty rock. Exactly. And that's the the miracle of Atsaluth that is the self-created marshmallow or the miracle of cornstarch. You pick. But either way, that is the layers of the, of the pavlova that it is this four world construction. I don't necessarily want to get into the elemental four, although I think that fruit as pentacles whipped cream as cups, 
Meringue as swords and Marshmallow as wand, the source of power, the, the closest to the fundamental. I feel like that's also pretty obvious when you look at it that way, Robin. Right. So if a magical character makes you a Pavlova and you, you as a player character consume it, presumably the effect that it has on you is one of realignment, of healing, of uh, bringing you back into uh, harmony with all uh, four of your uh, levels. So it would presumably be uh, part of the uh, healing or recuperation process, and that's how you get your magic points back. Uh, possibly even some of your hit points. It brings you, as you say, into communion with all four worlds and draws you closer to the Atsaluth, the godhead at the center. And this, of course, is why in Australia and New Zealand, they enjoy their Pavlovas at Christmas, because it is the time of bringing you back into communion with the godhead. That just makes sense. Right. So you go to the beach where it's hot and you have a Pavlova. Exactly. You do, because it's delicious and pillowy, not like uh, fruitcake, which you have in America, because it's cold. Well, now that uh, you know what your player characters can uh, do with uh, Pavlova and what its magical effects are, we can uh, pronounce this here podcast done for another week. And we'll be back uh, with more, perhaps not quite as sweet and delicious, but uh, just as enlightening as, as this one was. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astragown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast crisp around the edges and chewy on top, joining such esteemed backers as... James V. Nutley. Jason Krause. Peter Williamson. Jim Crocker. And Ryan Mannix. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab our latest design... Turn Undead, onto the security and compliance benefits of two-factor authentication. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Blue Sky, he's Robert D. Social. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>